The coronavirus test is free for everyone. If you have any symptoms, get tested and stay home. These include fever, chills or sweats, a cough, a sore throat, shortness of breath or runny nose, or loss of sense of smell or taste. Payments are available to help you stay home. For testing locations, visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. At Mitsubishi, we're all about firsts. Like when we introduced Australia's first 10-year new car warranty and 10 years cap price servicing. And now comes the first end of financial year event, offering it on every drive-away deal. But hurry, time's running out. Mitsubishi 1010, built and backed for the time of your life. Visit mitsubishi-motors.com.au. Exclusions and conditions including Mitsubishi servicing apply. See your Mitsubishi dealer for details. G-A-L-D-E-M G-A-L-D-E-M This song is good. Welcome to another season of Growing Up with Galden. Inspired by our book, I Will Not Be Erased, our stories about growing up as people of colour. My name is Charlie. I'm the editor-in-chief at Galden. We're an award-winning company committed to platforming the voices, perspectives and the creative work of women and non-binary people of colour. I'm Natty Kasimbala. I'm a writer and former editor and long-time contributor at Galden. Each week we invite guests to respond to old diary entries, letters or text messages from their younger selves. The point is to nurture important discussions about growing up. You can find Growing Up With Galdem on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Nazreen Malik is a British Sudanese columnist and features writer for The Guardian. Born in Sudan and raised in Kenya, Egypt and Saudi Arabia, she was named Society and Diversity Commentator of the Year at the 2017 Comment Awards and long-listed for the Orwell Prize for Exposing Britain's Social Evils in 2019 and the Orwell Prize for Journalism in 2021. We Need New Stories is her first book in which she explores such questions as Has freedom of speech become a cover for promoting prejudice? Has the concept of political correctness been weaponised to avoid ceding space to those excluded from power? Does white identity politics pose an urgent danger? Very interesting and important questions for the 21st century. Sweet. So just to say thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you on and to talk about a really interesting topic I certainly haven't really broached since I've joined the podcast. But I guess to jump straight in with your debut book, We Need New Stories, which obviously came out in 2019, I wondered if you'd found that, you know, in the last year and a half or two, that there have been any interesting questions or conversations that have been sparked by the release of your book that you're getting into as a journalist now? Well, what's been really interesting is that the book was, without this sounding like too much of a flex, the book was premature. The book was too early because everything that is in the book was me basically anticipating or explaining the current political trends based on, you know, these six, seven political myths that I'd observed but we had not yet caught up, I think, politically and in the media, had not yet caught up with why these things were happening. So things like Brexit, weaponizing free speech to pummel and abuse people of colour and trans people, things like controversy around our history, 
flashpoints around statues, education, all of these things have not yet become mainstream discourse. But uh, but when Brexit happened and the sort of culture wars took off after Brexit, I basically traced the origins of all these things. And the book sort of sits chronologically in the middle between the big precipitating events and us catching up to why they're happening. So it's been really nice because the book has just all these second and third and fourth lives because every time something happens, I get contacted by people saying this is the freedom of speech chapter, this is the political correctness chapter, this is the identity politics chapter, this is the history chapter. And so it's become in a way that I find actually quite disconcerting for me because I just wrote it as an observation, but now I'm like, oh, okay, I'm just going to flip to page 75 to explain to myself what's happening. (laughs) Um, So in that sense, it's been really nice because it has helped me navigate the political landscape. And it also, yeah, because it's just things I sort of theoretically observed, but never Mm -hmm. been in the middle of or had the experience of, sort of our whole country being in the middle of it. And the second thing that's been really great about it is that it's been, I think, useful in that people will contact me and say, you know, Piers Morgan doing this thing on Good Morning Britain is exactly the free speech argument that you made. So I think it's been useful to give Mm -hmm. people a framework to navigate the culture wars. That's so interesting. I mean, I'm wondering, obviously, Ron growing up with Galdem. So I'm wondering what you think it was about your upbringing or your sort of studies or whatever it is that gave you the ability to, you know, create something that was so prescient that, that did almost predict the future or, or certainly touched on <laughs> on the future. Yeah. Well, I think and I talk about this in the introduction to the book. I grew up in a very conservative society in Sudan and it was less that it was a traditional society and more that my specific family, which I talk about in the intro, were very good at myth-making. They were very good at sort of creating this foundational ideology for our family because it's like a big, big farming family that sort of combined Arab and African influences to create this sense of exceptionalism, which I think is a common thing in large families everywhere, actually across the world. But just the specific circumstances of my family, the fact that they were landowners and farmers, which is a very particular tribe in Sudan, they had basically had a bunch of intersecting superiority complexes. So They were from a certain tribe that thinks of itself as superior to others. They were Muslim, they were Arab, and they were farmers. And so these things in Sudan sort of give families or certain groups of people a sense of supremacy, even though they weren't all that. (laughs) <laughs> as I say in the in the intro yeah you know, so I, I that so, yeah so I grew up with this you know I tell these stories about how my grand which is where we need new stories comes from and that my grandmother would tell me all these stories when I was a kid about how large our family house was in our village and you know how you couldn't take a cup of tea from one side of the house to the other without it getting cold Uh, And how you could get lost if you didn't have, you know, the map of the house in your head. And as a child, I was like, 
sounds quite impractical, but if you say so. And then when I went to my father's village, it was just com- the complete opposite. It was, you know, they were just basically mud dwellings. They had no plumbing, they had no electricity, they had no wealth that they claimed that they had. And so what I found, what was foundational to me is this realization that you can either choose to believe these things and live in this delusion of grandeur and superiority when actually as a family we were you know struggling in many ways actually or you could just choose to live a real life you could choose to you know live in the real world and understand and what your status is and just and one thing I'll add is that it wasn't just the state of delusion that they were living in it was that because they lived in this fake world they didn't have the application and the understanding and the discipline to live sort of thriving lives because they just thought they were owed something and so it actually meant that they got worse that they became sort of more unstable you know less prosperous, blah, 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 because they just kind of assumed things would come their way. So in that sense, when I came to the UK, I came with this sense of skepticism. I'm just I'm just suspicious of any sort of group reaffirming mythology. I'm always like, that's something to be worried about. And the second thing is I just escaped from my family and from that suffocating sense of delusion to the UK thinking that here was a land where you know everyone I'm so embarrassed even telling the story that here was a land where everyone had an accurate appraisal of who they were and where they stood and actually found these things exactly playing out in the same way in the UK but in far more insidious ways so that's I guess my perspective on the stories that we need to that we need to write. And how old were you when you came to the UK, just for everyone? Uh, so, so in my early 20s, I was like 23, 24, I think. And I'd lived my entire life in the Middle East and North Africa. I'd never been to, I'd never been to the West at all. And so I had this very idealised version of it. And I think when you expect, when you expect a lot from a place you actually become more attuned or more likely to pick up when it's disappointing you. And yeah, it did did disappoint. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) I was hugely disappointed. Yeah. (laughs) I'm interested just to hear just like a touch more. You did go into it beautifully just then. And I remember that that moment from the introduction of your book very clearly, actually, because I was like, wow, this must have been a lot to contend with as a young person, sort of seeing the reality of one's family situation. But, you know, physically seeing the space and seeing that it was not what you thought it was, was it from that moment that you were able to make that connection to this wider theory of delusion? Or did it take some time to sit with that? And No, it took some time because I just thought I thought it was just my family. And I had become, you know, teenage, adolescent, emo way. I'd become very sort of militarized against them because I didn't have experience outside my family. You know, we were, well, they are very traditional, very conservative. We didn't, I didn't go out. I didn't really have a big social life. We didn't really travel. I'd never spent the night outside my house, basically, other than at relatives' houses, like never allowed sleepovers, like classic conservative African family 
So I became sort of radicalized against them and just thought that they were the root of all this dysfunction. And then, but, and I thought that everything outside of them was going to be healthy and normal. And now I think in hindsight, I judge them too harshly because then when I came to the UK, realized that there is basically a series of concentric circles of mythology that we start them out as individuals. We tell ourselves lies and stories as families. We tell ourselves stories as societies. We tell ourselves stories and as nations and cultures, we tell ourselves stories and some are benign and important and some are toxic and damaging. And so when I realized that that's what was going on when I came to the UK, that we were telling ourselves all these fake stories about how we were superior because of our, you know, exceptional social development, our equality, you know, our lack of misogyny and sexism, all these things. I was like, oh, okay, so we're all at it. We're all doing this. And I just felt like it seemed to me that that was the original sin as opposed to the issue of ideology. So instead of, you know, I felt like the the way to understand the world wasn't through the prism of right versus left or, you know, socialism versus conservatism, that it was about hierarchy and delusion and stories that we tell ourselves to convince ourselves that we don't need to do any better. And I felt like we did that across the board, across the political spectrum. And like I said, it has been really helpful to me since navigating the world with that in mind. I guess I just wanted to ask, I guess, across your childhood and then also when you came became confronted with these kind of delusions here in the UK, on a more like personal level, how you were able to kind of navigate those realisations. And I don't know, were you able to maintain relationships in which you found that to be the case? And how did you kind of... I guess, comfort yourself and console yourself when you're having those kinds of discoveries? It was tough. I spent a long time being quite lonely, a long time sort of being quite isolated and a way reproduced the isolation that I grew up with um, in Sudan in the UK. I found it very hard to sort of penetrate or crack British society because it seems like all the entry points were through a gateway of delusion. Mm. <laughs> so I was like, if you want to belong to this <laughs> no, group, you. You, yeah, exactly. Like if you want to belong to this group, you're gonna have to believe in this exceptional trait that you all have. And I think when you when you think of the world in terms of what stories we tell ourselves to make ourselves believe that we are better you see tribalism everywhere and then it becomes very hard to belong anywhere because, and you become very suspicious a priori of any belonging because you just think, what's the connective tissue here? Are we this group because we genuinely just vibe and we like each other and we have the same beliefs and ideas or is it because we think that we're better than everyone else because we're X, Y, or Z. And so I just became completely paranoid and (laughs) anti-pack mentality, which is not not a great recipe to get on anywhere in the UK, A, because it's super elitist and packy anyway, and also because I didn't grow up here. And so I already had a complete lack of network. 
or relationships to shepherd me through anything. So it was extremely lonely, a lot of work, a lot of forcing open doors yourself, as opposed to the sort of effortless way that it's done. I think when you have, when you have just normal organic networks in the UK. Yeah. How would you describe your network today? If you would describe it in that way. Small. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Small but mighty. Uh, small but mighty, small but handpicked, uh, and small but dis- small but disparate, small but very, very quirky. So uh, it's just people that it was just like people I met and I liked and I didn't feel suspicious towards. And so it is, yeah, it's a very it's a very small network of people that I love religiously and who have very little in common, actually. Mm. Yeah. And so it sounds like, you know, you're still slightly pushing up against that. As a journalist, someone who operates within media spaces, that must be the pack you would be most likely to fall into. But do you feel like you've resisted, you know, becoming a part of that as much? I'm I'm thinking just like in the context of my own like relationships with other journalists and, you know, the, the community that I feel like I've built with them for better or for worse. And like where you sort of see yourself within that, I guess. That's a really good question. And I think... The answer is not in terms of what I did to resist or not resist. It's in terms of how welcoming that circle is. And I think that if you are a genuine outsider, it is extremely unwelcoming in ways that you can't even explain, you know, in ways that you couldn't, you couldn't point out coherently to someone within the network who with a lot of goodwill wants to, bring you in you know but you're just like I still find it really strange for example that so many people went to Oxbridge I find that really weird I find it extremely disorienting to be in an industry where something like 90% of I think senior editors went to Oxbridge I find it very odd that they didn't only go to the same universities, but the same colleges within the same universities. Like the UK is a huge ass country. And I'm like, how are we still in this tiny, tiny pool? And that creates a shared language, a shared network, a shared set of values, shared jokes. And there is no way that it's not like I resisted being drawn into it. Mm. It was just not yeah. open to me. It was not you know? open. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just sorry. When you were saying that about the shared language, I just had this flashback to when I was doing work experience on a desk at The Guardian when I was around like 18 or 19 years old. I can't remember who it was, just for context, but they genuinely started speaking in Latin to each other. And I was just like, what? Like, It sounds like a sketch from like a... Yeah, I know. Like they were kind of joking around, like it was, it must have been some kind of like, you know, common phrase, but like they all kind of knew Latin. And I was like, is that normal? Like, I don't think that's normal. <laughs> I don't think that's normal. And I, I mean, this is from someone who has had a private education. You know, I had a private education abroad in Sudan. I mean, it's not the same as having a private education in the UK, um, but it's still a private education. And so, you know, I had... I can speak English, you know, I, I started learning, I didn't start learning English until like a little bit later in my childhood, so I couldn't speak English until I was about eight. But from eight years on, it, I had a private English education, and so that meant a certain access to, you know, British culture, literature, etc. And I thought 
naively that that would put me in would give me a starting chance like a, just a chance at being conversant professionally and socially with Britishness but it was not the case at all because there is just these all these new other layers like you say of exclusivity and parochialism and hermeticism um, and I think to someone who's not private edu- educated at all who doesn't even have access to those sorts of class privileges then it must be even m- more alienating and more bewildering yeah I'm, my mind's a little bit blown by the way that you like articulated that kind of I don't know yeah just I guess rejection of facades in in a social way especially I think it's something that a lot of us perhaps do just naturally but we don't necessarily put words to it in terms of just like oh I could be friends I could enter this sphere but I would have to kind of sell this part or compromise this part of myself to do so and you know maybe I like this person but that this whole wholesale group is just like feels like something other than that um so yeah that's really interesting but I guess if we could uh, it would be amazing to hear you read out the extract that you've got for us today and get into some more questions on that so I've been writing a long time it's important that your listeners understand this (laughs) so I went through not not too much but enough to be traceable intellectual maturing shall we say in the public space. And I wouldn't assume that I'm at the terminus of it either. So I think that it's still a work in progress. But the problem with that is that you can find stuff that you've written and think, oh, wow. There's evidence, uh, yeah. Yeah, but it's good that there is evidence that you have um, that you have evolved. And so this article was written nine years ago about a piece that was written by Egyptian feminist writer called Mona Al-Tahawi that created quite a big fuss in foreign policy. The cover of the edition was quite provocative. It was just this naked woman daubed in black paint with just a little bit of her eyes showing, so a sort of naked paint burka. And in the article, this Egyptian writer runs through a sort of litany of indictments of women's rights in the Middle East and says, you know, women are having it really badly in the Middle East and we should stop with this cultural relativism and really just attack the issue of women's rights in the Middle East without worrying that we're being racist or Islamophobic. And I, as someone who is from the Middle East and who does understand and has experienced all of these things that Mona Tahawi was talking about, you know, honour killings, forced marriage, FGM, unequal parenting laws, all that kind of stuff, I still had quite a defensive reaction to it. And so I'll start reading now how I felt about the article. I said, reading the article, I found myself bristling, yet simultaneously felt guilty for doing so, for who can deny the serious endemic discrimination from which women in the Middle East suffer? Reading on the article, I tried to convince myself that it was the author's sensational style that was bothering me and that this shouldn't obscure the message, or that the title and imagery were unfortunate, but the problems they were attempting to illustrate were real. But to my dismay, I found, as I read on, that instead of unraveling and unpicking the usual stereotypes which pepper 
the plethora of commentary on Arab women and exposing missing nuances, the author simply reinforced a monolithic view, holding the argument together using rhetoric, personal anecdotes, and a rhythmic punctuation with her main theme, that all Arab men hate Arab women. It did not help that with every page scroll, a different iteration of an unbelievably misguided shot of a naked woman posed and blacked out in paint to expose only her eyes assaulted one's sensibilities. A lazy effort at controversy equating women with sex and jettisoning the whole point of the edition by ironically reducing women to the stereotype of Tahawi dismisses as headscarves and hymens. I grew up in Sudan, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia, and in personal and professional dealings have had to grapple with most of the problems highlighted in the piece. They are very real, but there is a fine line to tread when writing about the status of Arab or Muslim women. For to do anything but condemn outright and expose the real suffering we go through feels like shirking a responsibility and wasting an opportunity. And the problem with rejecting generalizations around women's oppression is that it is easy to misunderstand this, re this rejection as a denial of the problem. Who could quibble with highlighting child marriage, female genital mutilation, or legally protected domestic abuse? Only a Stockholm Syndrome suffering apologist for patriarchy and moral relativism. How can one truly call for equivocation when we have a war on women on our hands? The coronavirus test is free for everyone. If you have any symptoms, get tested and stay home. These include fever, chills or sweats, a cough, a sore throat, shortness of breath or runny nose, or loss of sense of smell or taste. Payments are available to help you stay home. For testing locations, visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Live forward with the Lexus Hybrid Range. Charge as you drive, with fewer emissions and seamless performance. Visit your local Lexus dealer to find out more. The offences mentioned in the article are undeniable. We should not be distracted by the West's reduction of Muslim women to pawns in culture wars or military campaigns nor should we be distracted by ad hominem attacks on Al-Tahawi herself, or complain at the idea of airing dirty laundry. But these offences are not just because men hate women, or as I fear the article suggests, that Arab men hate Arab women. This is not a disease men are born with or contract from the Arab atmosphere. Even Al-Tahawi herself attributes it to a toxic mix of religion and culture. And to this, I would add the political oppression and stasis that enabled these structures to become de facto governance, where entrenched tribal allegiances, pre-Islamic mores, and social tradition trumped weak political culture. A general retardation that extends not just to women, but to every aspect of personal freedom and civic rights. Yes, in Saudi Arabia, women cannot drive, but men cannot elect their government. Instead, they are ruled over by a religiously opportunistic dynasty. In Egypt, it's true that women were subjected to virginity tests, but men were sodomized. 
In Sudan, women are lashed for wearing trousers, but ethnic minorities are also marginalized and under assault. We must not belittle the issues women face or relegate them to second place, but we must place them in a wider context where wholesale reform is needed. One cannot reduce a much more universal and complicated problem merely to gender. El Tahawi argues that our political revolutions will not succeed unless they are accompanied by revolutions of thought. But I would argue that nor can the latter succeed without the former. A more generous political space will allow for the challenging of patriarchy, which in turn extends the roots of political reform deeper. To heed El Tahawi's call and indulge in cultural absolutism, if we are to use the West as a model, basic women's and even minority rights did not become enshrined until there was a political environment where traditional structures, particularly the church, had sufficiently receded. The call to arms, therefore, should not be to the outside world to recognize the truth of men's hatred towards women, but rather to Arabs. And in a time of political upheaval, this call should ask them to look inwards and continue to recognize and dismantle the structures that have been perpetuated for too long. This reform is already underway when it comes to women's rights, thanks to the efforts of several Arab feminists, such as Noal Sadawi and Tawakul Karman who recognize that we need to fight the patriarchy, not men. Awesome. Thanks so much for reading that out. I think it's a really powerful statement. And just before you read it, you talked about, I guess, the evolution of your ideas since this piece was written. So I guess a good starting point would just be how it felt to read that back and where you would say you find yourself now in terms of your beliefs around the subject. Well, most of it holds up, I think. I still believe that we need to... It was basically a sort of over-academic stab at intersectionalism before it was trendy. Um, But the problem was that I, in this eagerness to take in the context always and not essentialise what is happening to women, I think I did miss or I elided or I minimised the fact that it doesn't matter why men hate women, they do, (laughs) right? And I think that it's important to acknowledge and to process and to take stock of and try and understand the ramifications of it um, because the context of it or the reasons why it happens doesn't mean that it's not happening. And I think that the balance in this piece Although I think the ideas are sound and the intention is sound, I think the balance means that it sort of makes men quite passive and it just places them in a wider context always. And actually everyone has volition, right? These are all choices that we make, even though we are socialized to make them. And I think if a woman wants to say, that bad things happen because men hate women, I think that's a fair statement and should be allowed to pass without someone writing a 1,500-word article telling you to contextualize it. <laughs> but you know, it's really interesting to hear you reflect on your own work in that way. I think whenever I read an article of yours, 
I always walk away convinced. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you write. I was reading that and I was like, yeah, completely agree. Excellent. So it's really lovely, to, you know, in a way to hear you unpack and unpick, like, the reasoning behind why you wrote it and how your views have changed and that, you know, you perhaps would not have, have written quite the same thing today. Do you think you've always been as considered as you are now in your writing, especially when you started out? No, definitely not. Definitely not. And that was a function of many things. One being young. When you're young, you're just more strident and more convinced and you have more access to grind, I think. And therefore your writing is less objective, number one. And I think when you're young, you are also more malleable to editors who want you to be less considered because it makes good copy. And I look back on stuff that I wrote when I was a lot younger and think, oh, I should have pushed back on that. But I was a freelancer and, you know, in my early 20s and I probably would not, that wouldn't wouldn't have gone down well. And so I think with time and with age and with a little bit of capital, professional capital, you actually become, or should, I think, become more considered and able to push back or resist binary framing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, on that note then, did you ever sort of write any pieces around women in the Middle East, like in your younger days that, you know, maybe ones that you like and others maybe that you feel you're less sort of um, super duper proud of (laughs) today? I would be surprised if every writer looks back upon their work and is proud of every single thing they've written or doesn't cringe and think, oh, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have put it like that or I wouldn't have put it today. But having said that, when you asked me to come up with a piece of writing that I changed my mind on, I did go back into the archive. And even though I would have phrased things differently in some cases or used different examples, there is not, there isn't, I can't think of a political position or a a value or a principle that I wanted to put out there that I don't believe in anymore. Maybe that the priority or the kind of the order has changed. So like, for example, with this piece, I think it's more important to talk about bad behavior. I think that comes first. And then what comes second is the context. I don't disagree with the basic principle of the piece. So yeah, I don't think I haven't read all of it, but I can't think of of a thing that I would just be like, you know what, I've actually completely changed my mind on that. Delete from the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I'd love to delete a lot, but (laughs) (laughs) nothing I like. Yeah, there's nothing that I can't defend uh, to myself. And like I said, if I have been, if I feel a piece or an idea has been let down, it's been let down by tone or, Mm. uh, you know, how the, the technicalities of writing it. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. It's just more about the framing than the, like, kind of the cultural foundations. I was just thinking, like, it's almost like the piece was, like, in response to the original piece, it was like a, okay, but, and if you could do it again, it would be a, like, yes, and here's some more context, you know? Yeah, or actually, I, yeah. Or I wouldn't, I wouldn't, if I could do it again, I wouldn't have done it at all. Yeah, I'd just been like, no, fair enough. This is, this is a... This is a fair comment. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep, keep walking. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. And I guess one of the points that I did think was really valuable in it was, I think just still that conversation of, around 
external Western discourse and commentary on the rights of, and treatment of women in some of the countries that you've mentioned, which you've lived in, versus or in opposition to internal discourse or the internal awareness and conversations happening in those countries. And I wondered if, like, in your experience, you felt like we're at a point where those external conversations are meeting up with the internal ones or whether it still feels like there's a kind of disconnect between our perceptions on the outside versus how things actually go on on the inside? That's a really good question and I would split it into two. I think that we have Western perceptions of the Middle East and we also have Western perceptions of Muslims within the UK. Um, and... I would rephrase the question. I don't think it's a matter of perception or truth versus untruth. I think it's a matter of perspective. And I think if you're within the Middle East, your experience of the things that people perceive on the outside, even though maybe objectively true, your experience of them is different. And if you're outside in the West and you view certain things in the Middle East because you're not experiencing them, your view of them is, is quite straightforward. And so what I have learned is that it's not about what people say about us as people of color or Muslims or Middle Easterners or Arabs or whatever. It's how we experience the texture of what we experience and how we process it that is always going to be different. And that's been an age old fact. Like Edward Said pointed out years ago that the way the West needs to think about the East or now the South as this kind of idealized other. And even though on paper, it looks like, as is in the article, that there is forced, you know, forced marriage or honor killings or unequal laws, you know, encouraging domestic violence, etc. Your experience of them as someone on the inside, the tools with which you process them, the love and affection you have for people who are visiting these things on you make it a different experience and so the way you fight it is necessarily also different right in that you can't drop a bomb on your family right you can't apply sanctions on your extended network like the tools that the west has which is just to condemn isolate and hopefully eradicate are not the tools that we have when we're in the midst of it. And so we just have to continue navigating it where we can and opposing it where we can while maintaining the links that we have with it that are not all reducible to violation. Absolutely. And I'm going to hold on what, to what you said about texture because I think that's such a, such a good way of describing the experiences of so many people. So we're going to come to the end of the podcast just because um, no, we've, nice <laughs> we've kept you for almost an hour. We've really enjoyed talking to you and getting a further insight into your work and into your life growing up. But the question I have for you now is, is what advice you would give to your younger self in this moment who's writing this article as a response to, to Mona's piece? What do you think that you would say to her? <laughs> I think I would say that sometimes you should say nothing at all. And it is also a piece of advice that I give to myself today all the time, which is that just because you have, an, just because you have a response or an idea 
doesn't mean that it needs to be aired. Just the fact that you have it doesn't mean that it's true or logically sound. And I think we're all we're all encouraged to post all the time. I think, especially if you're a journalist, it's your job to. If you're an opinion journalist, even more crucially, it's your job to turn your opinions into something quite coherent and logical. But it's important to understand that we get all sorts of ideas in our heads all the time, and sometimes <laughs> it's fine to just be like. I don't think this one probably stands up to scrutiny and I'm probably going to spend a lot of time padding it out to make it stand up to scrutiny and you can just take the L sometimes don't say anything at all don't tweet <laughs> don't don't post don't write just go and yep. go and have a walk <laughs> literally Absolutely. close the apps and go for a walk <laughs> literally <laughs> I think I think that is that is evergreen advice to my younger self and to my older self And then the second part of that question is, I guess, what do you think your younger self would think of where you are today? And I think I would actually pose this to your younger self who, like a multitude of them, maybe it's the one mm. who came to the UK, maybe it's the one who was in her family unit across like in the Middle East, or maybe it's the one who wrote this piece. Yeah, I'm just curious to hear what you think she'd think of where you are. I love this question. So I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I didn't think I was going to achieve it uh, at various points, but it was something I knew from a very young age. And I think that if you ask like a very young me what I what she thought, she would be like, "Oh, of course! Like this is what we've always wanted to do, so it makes sense." If you ask the sort of teenage me who was in the middle of the wars about delusion and freedom and what constitutes success or what what is like all these confusing ideas about achievement and status and relative status and and who you are and where you're from in in that time if you told me I'd be here today I would just think it was a, it was like a science fiction movie I just think that is impossible that that would happen because it was such a low point for me both sort of mentally in terms of trying to figure things out but also just practically to be living you know in Sudan and have no assets no means with which to leave no visibility on getting the means to leave up against draconian visa systems even if you did have the means it just seemed like to me the, the west or europe or the place where i could achieve what i wanted might as well have been on Mars. And so if you told me that then I wouldn't have believed it. And then there's the sort of freelancer me who had been at it for a very long time and at one point thinking how does anyone ever become a journalist? I was just like how does this work? How do you what well, I mean how it works is that you have money basically and that you have you know parents or bursaries or you know some sort of financial support to make it work. And so if you told me then, I'd have been like, did I win the lottery? Did I get a bursary? Like how did how did it happen? <laughs> But the one thing that joins these three is that irrespective of belief or disbelief about how it happened, I think the three of them would have been like, that's right. It it could have only been this. This is what I've always wanted mm. to do. Oh, I love when that's the answer. 
Yes. <laughs> Gorgeous. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to chat to you. And yeah, I hope we'll continue stunning all of your work. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. And then check it in nine years to see if I disavow yeah, it. Yes. <laughs> like the Billie Absolutely. Eilish thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, awesome. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, ladies. I really enjoyed this. But yeah, Natty, I saw you nodding, you know, strongly, vigorously along to a lot of what Nazreen was saying, especially at the beginning of the interview, where where she was talking about this idea of delusion in relation to her book. And I wondered why that sort of spoke to you. Oh, it struck a chord. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's just a thing of like, again, I know I, I always talk about being an immigrant. <laughs> I moved to the UK when I was two months old. <laughs> but I think when you kind of come from an outsider perspective in terms of like your culture and you live as an outsider in different aspects of society, like Nazreen said, it can be easier to, and you kind of expect certain things. It can be easier to see the ways in which like those things are falling short or just not serving you. So I think, it's, yeah, it's definitely a perspective that I've taken in terms of like, as we've talked about before, I was always that person who's like, I don't have best friends, not doing the whole friendship group thing. Like I've always been quite skeptical of like group think. And yeah, so it struck a chord with me in terms of just, even now, I think if I was to describe my network, while I do partake in like certain group activities, I still find myself as generally a more individual and like, like I've almost, again, like she said, like cherry picked people who I feel like understand that about me and are willing to, you know, I think there's, there can often be like the societal pressure of like, if you're not going to ride with like the whole package, then I'm not that interested. But I think finding people who are willing to understand your perspective and like not ask for too much from you in that respect has been a gift, you know, in, in yeah. not being lonely in it. Absolutely. I think it's a really interesting topic. I mean, I don't want to talk too much about journalism and our own mm. experiences, but just, just quickly to relate it back. <laughs> it's like, obviously, we on this podcast even, and especially just thinking of the last episode with Stacey Ann Chin talking about community, and where do you kind of draw the line between yeah. community and the more negative aspects of, like, groupthink and group actions that can actually be quite exclusionary? I think that's a really fascinating topic, and it is one I do think about, even in relation to, you know, like, Galdem. Like, I'm just yeah. like, you know... What kind of structures have we built around us um, as a as a community that might not be right for everyone? I don't know. Yeah. Do you, am I articulating One, myself well? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. I think in kind of finding common ground that's supposed to be like a sanctuary or solace for people, a lot of communities have to be very wary of those invisible structures that kind of can prevent other people from gaining access or become like a requirement for entry. I think even in terms of when I think about living in London or just like London culture, black Twitter, like all of those kinds of spaces, like as someone who came from the countryside or someone who came from, you know, from Scotland, even the most like trivial of communities can feel like it has these boundaries that meet, yeah. make it harder for certain people to, to enter. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. And it seems like it's an inherent part of like human nature to kind of want yeah. to group in that way. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. And I think one of the reasons why I have sometimes like on an individual level 
gone with the group think, if that's how you want to describe it, is because for me, maybe unlike you and Nazreen, because I grew up, I was born in the UK and, and maybe don't have so much of an outsider perspective. Although obviously everyone has it to an yeah. extent. But I, I've always just loved group environments. If I can find myself in a group environment where I feel sort of safe and happy, that is like my crypt, uh, not kryptonite, yeah. the opposite of kryptonite. I'm like, <laughs> that's like my good kryptonite. <laughs> good <laughs> but like as in and it's I don't know it just there's something about it that feeling of belonging mm. and maybe actually it was because I felt like for so many years you know back in Scotland I didn't belong and I saw all these other people belonging I was like yeah, yeah so actually maybe it's kind of like it's not so much that I grew, grew up here and therefore felt more attuned to that it's more that like my reaction to the feeling of outsider status was more more to one of like out yeah that's so interesting yeah. though yeah interesting stuff but yeah um she's great i think she's so uh, one of the best writers you know opinion writers that we have in the uk today like and everyone if you don't read her guardian column you should do get get on the the nazarene train this has been an ii studios production thank you so much for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode don't forget you can sign up to become a member at gal-dem.com for access to exclusive discounts with our favourite brands and partners, early access to tickets for Galdem events, an advanced copy of our annual print issue, and so much more. Make sure you're following us on all major social media platforms at Galdem Zine for the latest independent journalism, or visit our website, which is gal-dem.com. Galdem has a book, I Will Not Be Erased, Our Stories About Growing Up As People Of Colour. It's available in all good bookstores or online. If you loved this episode of Growing Up With Galdem, be sure to subscribe, rate and leave a review. We'll catch you on the next episode. The coronavirus test is free for everyone. If you have any symptoms, get tested and stay home. These include fever, chills or sweats, a cough, a sore throat, shortness of breath or runny nose or loss of sense of smell or taste. Payments are available to help you stay home. For testing locations, visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Live forward with the Lexus Hybrid Range. Charge as you drive with fewer emissions and seamless performance. Visit your local Lexus dealer to find out more.